Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Creative Control with Beach Comic. On this episode, Jello Biafra. What's that? You thought it was pronounced Biafra? No, no, it's Biafra. Trust me. Jello Biafra and his band, the Guantanamo School of Medicine, released an album earlier this year. It's called White People and the Damage Done. I can totally relate to that album title. And they are making some Canadian stops on June 16th at Call of the Office in London and June 17th at the Opera House in Toronto. And I've spoken to Jello a few times, once in Oslo, once in Oslo, Norway, actually. Uh, I forgot to bring that up. I never even thought to bring that up. And then once on the phone a couple years ago, a year ago, I don't know, whenever it was. Anyway, Dead Kennedys meant a lot to me as a kid, and still do. And he was in that band. Uh, the band is reformed. He is estranged from them. We get into that. We talk about uh, politics generally. We talk about uh, his upbringing a little bit. And, uh, you know, I felt bad for him. He's going through a tough time. He's losing lots of friends. Uh, people are passing away. But uh, he's, uh, well, he's as, as outspoken and I suppose verbose as ever. And uh, I, I hope you'll enjoy this chat. So here it is myself, Jello Biafra, and you'll hear a brand new song from the Guantanamo School of Medicine uh, before all is said and done as well. So here it is. Hey, this week's episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero. For my money, the best pizza you can eat in Guelph, Ontario. A proud, independent family business run by a punk rocker, Trocadero only uses a rich array of fresh ingredients cut by hand and homemade dough made daily, all baked to perfection inside of a stone oven. It's gourmet panzerotti, calzones, wings, salads, garlic bread, breadsticks, and oh man, the pizza, the pizza. Personally, I like the gourmet Domateo with goat cheese, artichoke, roasted red pepper, mushrooms. I sub out the turkey breast for eggplant, but that's just me. Wash the whole thing down with a brio. Man, I am getting hungry just talking about this. Call Pizza Trocadero at 519-829-2444. Visit them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph and online at trocaderoguelph.ca. T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. Boy, 
Jello Biafra was the lead singer of the influential punk band Dead Kennedys and has since gone on to do significant work as an actor, spoken word artist, and vocalist, as well as being the head honcho at the still busy and prolific record label Alternative Tentacles. His first band since he left Dead Kennedys is called Jello Biafra and the Guantanamo School of Medicine, and their new album is called White People and the Damage Done, which they're touring behind right now, including stops in London, Ontario on June 16th, and Toronto on June 17th. Uh, here now to discuss all of this and more is the fearless Jello Biafra. Uh, hi, Jello. How are you? Uh, yeah, it's actually pronounced Biafra, not Biafra. Oh, I, I apologize. I didn't realize that. I've... You and Nardwar have some learning to do. <laughs> it's a Canadian thing. We Canadians don't know how to it say is, it. It is, actually. Yeah, yeah, you're the only people who say it that way. Well, maybe. Is it possible we're right? Sometimes I feel like we're right when other people are wrong. That's a Canadian thing, I think, maybe. No, I mean, I actually met somebody from the original Republic of Biafra, and, and uh, I think it actually was in Toronto once, and uh, he said Biafra, not Biafra. Okay, I apologize. So from here on in, you will always be Jello Biafra to me, and I appreciate you uh, correcting me. Now, where in the world are you? Home. Oh, you're at home. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. You're, you haven't left for any uh, travels yet. How are things going there? All right. All right, good. Last month, I was reading things on the Internet, and I came upon your name in connection to the Web Fastlane vote spearheaded by uh, the FCC chairman, Tom Wheeler. Can you can you explain what this vote was about and, and why your name might have come up? Well, it was a stealth attempt to do uh, for corporations to uh, accomplish what they couldn't with the so-called SOTA and PIPA bills when public outcry shot them down in Congress to basically privatize, restrict, and censor the Internet. They've wanted that for years, and not just for motivations of greed, but if you price the structure right, it means that grassroots activists and journalists no longer can get the word out to people because they can't afford, you know, to get on the information highway. They're stuck more on a dirt road to nowhere and possibly off a cliff. Hmm. So the motivation is not just greed, it's censorship, you know, use the private sector to do what the government does to censor the net in countries like China, Iran, and Turkey. So, and and how are you involved? Like you, I saw your name come up in a, it's, it was a document, it was basically a letter protesting this thing, right? Yeah, they asked me to put my name on. I thought it was a good idea, and I'm glad they got the letter together, because I didn't even know this was going on. I mean, they're doing it and trying to do it in in the most secretive way they can for a reason. You know, they know the public doesn't want this. Hmm. Not to mention President Barakstar campaigned on a platform of preserving net neutrality. Then again, he also said he'd close Guantanamo Bay Mm -hmm. and quit torturing people. You know, how long did that promise last once they got their hands on Chelsea Manning? Right, right. So, okay, so what what is the status of this uh, vote at this point? You'd think I would know that, wouldn't you? I don't. <laughs> well, I, I... I apologize for that. The fact that there hasn't been any more news may mean, at least in the short run, no news is good news, hmm. and that they either haven't voted or it got voted down. Right. But yeah. you're right. That's worth checking on. I should know the answer to that question. I don't. No, it's that's fair, and I, I haven't. Uh, I did some research too, and I didn't see anything beyond uh, discussions and sort of. I, I guess that this was. 
this kind of came to a head in mid-May or something like that, I think. So it hasn't been that long. Um, but uh, Well, the vote was supposed to be on, what was it, May 15th? Yeah. And we haven't heard anything, so uh, maybe our ears are in the wrong place or whatever. But even if they don't vote or postpone, you'd think people would send out a notice about that to uh, yeah, for alert sure. people as clueless as I am where this thing is really at. And you were among many signatories, is that right? Were there other prominent... I would assume, yeah. I mean, I get asked to sign stuff like this all the time. So, uh, you know, I just look at it and say yes or no, and then out it goes, and I move on to something else. Yeah, right. I was In listening to White People and the Damage Done, one of my takeaways uh, in terms of any kind of message that's conveyed here is that it seems that no part of conventional mainstream governance seems to be working in the world at large. Is that your take on things? Is that is that an accurate sort of uh, perspective to have on this record? Well, the album, it's kind of a concept album against uh, worldwide kleptocracy, hmm. grand theft austerity, you know, trying to drag us not just back to the 19th century, but the 9th century and bring back feudalism. You know, the barons and lords and the high castles and everybody else is a poor, starving peasant on the other side of the moat. Right. You know, this is what happens when, uh, you know, you get get a power play by uh, people who are so addicted to wealth, they can't stop themselves. Like, they're they're like crack addicts, only they're addicted to money. Hmm. It's not as though they they don't already have so much money they can't figure out how to spend it all. But... They're just like addicts. They have to have more and more and more. And hey, I, whenever I get more, I win. Therefore, somebody else must lose. And the more that other people lose, the better it is for me. <laughs> I mean, those kind of people need to be put in rehab until they can straighten themselves out. And I think the best form of rehab uh, uh, turned up on the original platform of the California Green Party, and that was to enact the maximum wage. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out how someone listening to this record can take something away from it that would inspire them to affect positive change. There, to me, it feels like... Well, 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 go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, to me, there is this sense of... It's, it, this is a satire, obviously. Like The, the lyrics are, are satiric, but there does seem to be a hopelessness in some ways that's conveyed here, and, and that's why it, it drew me to thinking, like, well, what can someone take away... You kind of, you need to revisit the lyrics to Shockupy. Oh, okay. There's a reason I put it at the end of the album. Both, uh, you know, tipping my hat to the Occupy movement, and more importantly to the spirit of the Occupy movement, because of course the tents and the camps are long gone, but the spirit lives on, and uh, hopefully will if there's enough insurrection in the voting booth in your upcoming provincial election. Hmm. You know, to not just throw out the crackhead mayor, but to throw out the uh, wealth addicts as well. You're you're paying close attention to what's going on up here, I take it. Um, as close as I can without you know surfing tons of Canadian news sites and stuff. We get very little news down here. All we hear is that you know the most important thing in the world is to build the keystone xl pipeline so other people can get rich while the rest of us choke and die and that the uh, celebrity the, the mayor of toronto is a celebrity goof now because he's a crackhead mm-hmm. 
never mind that his policies were pretty toxic as well. You know, how did that guy get elected in the first place? Yeah. A lot of people Does this are... mean he's going to get reelected in spite of being a crackhead just because uh, that many voters in Toronto whites want somebody who's that cruel and right wing? That can't really be right. Mm-hmm. But in order to make it right, you know, more people who are tired of this shit need to show up and vote and vote smart. One of your like one, one telling of... people in America to shut the fuck up about Hillary Clinton. You know, that, that, you know, she's a right-wing corporate bitch anyway. But, you know, all this Hillary for president in 2016, who gives a fuck? It's 2014, and there's a more important election coming up this fall. Hmm. More important because it's right now, and because just like in Canada, the local elections are where it's at. Right. What Even is... the Tea Party and those, you know, and, that, and those horrible... Uh, Governors and legislatures in places like Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania and North Carolina, they couldn't get away with all this shit, taking people's voting rights away, abolishing teachers and municipal employee unions like they have in Wisconsin. They couldn't get all that rubber stamp if people showed up and voted and threw the Tea Party people out of the state legislature. Mm -hmm. Not to mention getting rid of the governor. But even if you still have a nut job funded by Texas oil barons like the Koch brothers for governor, he can't get a damn thing done if the legislature won't cooperate anymore. And worrying about Hillary in 2016 is not going to solve this problem. I think what you're speaking to is uh, one of the central themes on this album, which has to do with how we distract ourselves with things that don't really matter. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 we kind of cooperate with it, don't we? Yeah. You know, I've kept telling people for years that the spoken word show is one of the most important parts about becoming the media and going one-on-one, eye-to-eye to communicate what's important to other people. You know, it doesn't mean blogging to an echo chamber of people who already agree with you. It means eye-to-eye, one-on-one, pointing out that you might lose your job in your home not because of brown-skinned immigrants, but because of corporations trying to steal your land and ship your job overseas. Mm. Duh. But, you know, and getting through to some people who are more or less brainwashed with, you know, all assholes all the time on talk radio and most of talk TV, it's an uphill battle. But if we don't plant the seed one-on-one, eye-to-eye with people we know in, you know, home, school, work, family, whatever, nobody's going to do it. I, and, and so uh, I, guess, I guess the way we cooperate with it is not questioning it enough or not automatically putting our bullshit detectors on. That's what I've told people for years on the spoken word show, and I say don't hate the media, become the media. A major part of it is just encouraging other people, especially kids, to grow better bullshit detectors. Have those antennae out at all times. You know, it can even protect young girls from the fashion police when they get beat up on all sides. From like, hey, if you are as pretty as Britney Spears or a pretty boy like Justin Bieber, you're not popular or wealthy or whatever. There must be something wrong with you. Yeah. Bullshit. If somebody has a strong bullshit detector, they can say, I don't need that. I'd rather be myself. Thank you very much. Bye. That is the importance of strong bullshit detectors, but they also have to be applied to uh, not just um, corporate cartoon McNews, but the uh, grassroots blogosphere as well. 
you know, you can't just automatically adopt a totally cynical attitude towards CNN and Fox News and Canadian equivalents and then turn around and believe and, and, and cop the attitude that if it's, if it's on the Internet, if a blogger says it, then it must be true. Right. You know, how, do you have any idea how many times I've died on the Internet? <laughs> you know, I've looked for the bullet holes and the blood in the shower. I can't find it. But if the Internet says I'm dead, then it must be true, right? Mm-hmm. Well, no. Wrong. You know, put your bullshit detector on. Don't just question authority. Don't just question Jellabiafra. Question bloggers. There was a point in time... Oh, it just boils down to logic and common sense. Right. Which is why I've never bought into the 911 conspiracy theory. Right. You know, a lot of what these people claim just isn't supported by science, let alone logic. You put yourself in the position of the military-industrial complex and think like they do, look at it through their eyes, it makes no financial sense to do that when the Iraq invasion was already planned anyway. Hmm. All they had to do was, you know, blow a few more holes in a boat like the SS Cole, or even stage a fake shipping sinking of a naval vessel in the you know, special effects in Fox Studios, and the war would be on anyway. Right. There was a point in time, I would think, that you seemed to be... I wouldn't say alone, but you were kind of ahead of maybe some of your peers making music. I'm speaking of a time that I was not around for, so forgive me if I'm, you know, presuming You're too much. You're talking lyrically or musically or both? Uh, yeah, I think lyrically and musically. I think you stood out, and I think that's why people, uh, I assume that's one of the reasons why people uh, really galvanized around Dead Kennedys, because you were saying things that other people weren't saying, and you were asking people to think about things that maybe other people weren't. Do you, if that was the case, do you feel with the messaging that you're talking about now in terms of inspiring people to have better bullshit detectors, do you feel alone in this message? Do you feel like there's a community of people like you that are are affecting change in that way? Oh, I've never felt alone. I had a nose for pretty weird and wild people, even when I was a kid. Hmm. You know, my parents, no, 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 Eric, don't hang out with that John Greenway guy. He keeps getting you into trouble. (laughs) But we know each other to this day. He even showed me H.R. Giger's artwork for the first time later on when we were living together in San Francisco as adults. Hmm. But, you know, I've been drawn to people like Giger himself, to Al Jorgensen, to Winston Smith, and even clear back around full circle to my own father before he died last fall. As far as this, uh, I guess I've always kind of been drawn like a moth to a flame to people either, you know, more intelligent than I am or, uh, you know, or just people who have this brilliance that I want to, you know, you, you know, ca- catch or uh, I want to be around, experience and explore and share with and stuff, you know? Hmm. What what or who actually first got you into music? You mentioned your childhood there. What, what was the first spark for you in terms of becoming interested in music? Me. <laughs> you you heard a recording of yourself on the radio and you Every like, <laughs> no, oh, come on, think about it. Everybody gets interested in music when they decide that they are. Right. And usually it just takes hearing music they like for the first time. I mean, when I was real little, it was classical music and uh I guess, I, I guess little baroque hymns struck a chord with me cuz I would sing them sometimes after hearing them and 
know, Pete Seeger was an early one too, Joan Baez, and then my dad had this Japanese kabuki music record. I later got off of him as a pothead teenager because I thought it sounded like Hawkwind or something. Mm -hmm. I really liked, I still like that record. But uh, the Azuma Kabuki Musicians, great album. The only record trade I ever had to do with my own father was trading in my Eric Satie album to get that. (laughs) He was an avant-garde classical composer. I mean, a a lot of what they liked I didn't over time, except for Carl Orff. We can always agree on Carmina Burana. We even all got to see it live together before, uh, long before Dad passed on. That was really cool. But... um, you know, as soon as they blundered into a rock and roll station on the radio when I was seven years old, I was like, no, no, leave it there, leave it there. And they immediately went for the hard stuff, the wild stuff, the nasty stuff. You know, I'm very grateful that uh, I blundered into it early enough that I experienced the 60s garage era in the 60s. Right. And those local bands still got played on local radio. You know, I, I mean, I mean, the Beatles were the one other people had heard of, of course. But uh, you know, I was more into the early Rolling Stones, Paul Revere and the Raiders, and lesser-known one-hit wonders who blew me through the wall, like the Music Machine or Psychotic Reaction by the Count Five. And let's not forget Eric Burden and the Animals. That never gets old. Right. You know, I I I, I honed a fair amount of my singing skills uh, from Eric Burden, among others. You know, later on as a teenage vinyl junkie, I had all this free time driving around delivering pizzas to start playing around with my own singing voice. And it occurred to me that, uh, you know, hey, I'm the one who has all the great imitations of teachers and celebrities in school. What would happen if I actually imitated people I liked and wasn't just trying to make fun of? And, you know, before long, I had Eric Burden down. I had Jim Morrison down. Uh, Peter Ivers, Iggy, tried for Rocky Erickson, but my God, has that guy got a range on his voice. Right. Guy Saxon. I even had Robert Plant down pretty good until I burned up that voice smoking too much weed before I quit smoking once I moved to San Francisco. You know, there went my Robert Plant, Chris Cornell voice. Is music better off? You decide. <laughs> I always could do Brian Ferry really well, too, which meant hours of laughter with my friends. And then later, when we were, Ben Kennedy was recording Kill the Poor, I tried doing that song in a Brian Ferry voice because of the, uh, you know, the message of the song and everything. And it was funny, but it turned out the other local track was better. So we went with the one that people know today. And somewhere on the two-inch multi-track master tape is Brian Ferry voice. <laughs> Riding away somewhere in Ray's garage, I suppose. Oh, he's got the masters, I assume. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they they have physical and legal possession of everything, thanks to that, you know, calculatedly mean-spirited lawsuit they scam they did on me when I didn't want to put Holiday in Cambodia in the Levi's commercial. Right. Right. Um, you, you know that that that's why they're really cavalier about it, and I'm not really told very often what's going on. I mean, I didn't even know this singles box existed till Exclaim contacted Alternative Tentacles, wondering if their little press release saying, oh, comments from band members included me, which of course it didn't. Right. 
And, the, and these singles don't even have the lyric inserts in them anymore. The lyrics have been removed. That's that, that's a pointed uh, pointed. That's that's pointed towards you. They they did that because they don't want to highlight your 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 main contribution, I guess. Yeah, I mean, of course, the band comments are all a long dialogue between Ray and Klaus, where I'm, you know, grudgingly mentioned once about scribbling in a notebook, and I never had notebooks. I don't work that way. Huh. But uh, you know, they they got this fluke legal verdict, so now they've had to invent all this mythology to try and make it stick claiming that I didn't write any of the music, and at one point Ray claimed the lyrics were all reviewed by committee, and uh, and then another interview claimed that he regretted not censoring them because they were too far over people's heads. So, uh, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it, it, it's really, really sad. I mean, I'm proud of Dead Kennedys. Those songs mean the world to me. You know, I wrote most of the music, too, after all. Right. You know, as evidenced by their lack of new songs ever since. But, uh, you know, I think I'm probably the last the last ex-member of Dead Kennedys who even cares about, who cares about the music. Right. Or respect. You, you mentioned uh, the, impre- the impressions you would basically do of other singers, and... Uh... And we talked about your your musical sort of awakening, so to speak. Did you have a theater background as well? A bit of one, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I did stage acting from uh, late middle school on up, and luckily I had really demanding directors who were both method directors too. You know, where you had to build the character from within the so-called Stanislavski method and. And, you know, from the beginning, they picked real plays that adults performed, too. So, you know, we went up against the adult theaters in the community, and we held our own. Wow, okay. It made for some interesting roles. I had the Boris Karloff role in Arsenic and Old Lace, and even got to play Ebenezer Scrooge one Christmas. I'd love to do that one again someday. (laughs) Actually, that would be a hell of a lot of fun. You actually took up acting for quite a spell. When's the last time you acted? Oh, God, when would that have been? Um, earlier this year, at some point, a um, couple things. Yeah, I think there was, one, there was a, a little uh, parody of the Hunger Games that's gone on on YouTube. They do parodies of the trailers and call them the Hipster Games. <laughs> so I wound up being the Donald Sutherland president guy in the... Uh, in the sequel parody. And then I was recently on Portlandia as well. Nice. A bit of typecasting, I suppose. They cast me as an 80s punk who wakes up from a 20-year coma and can't believe how overrun with yuppies Portland has become. So I started (laughs) hacking them. Yeah, that's typecasting. I think. I think that makes. I think you're right there. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, they, they, they said they really liked my work, so I'm pleading, pleading with Fred in particular. Hey, if you want, bring me back, but put me in some other roles, just like you and Carrie do, so that's not always the same thing. I, you, know, I'll, you know, we'll have a lot of fun. Believe you me. <laughs> that's cool. I, we were talking about your past a little bit. Can you talk about? How this? So you had the music, and then you had the the, the theater uh, in in middle school. You were saying, and in, in in grade school, how did Dead Kennedys actually come together? I came out to San Francisco looking to find, uh, you know, 
punk, a band, wild scene, whatever. I figured at the very least I could tell my kids I saw the Avengers and the Dills live before they played stadiums. Right. We thought it was going to be bigger than Beatlemania then. But by early 78, we, you know, a lot of people realized it wasn't going to be like that at all and that the, the major labels and the star makers weren't interested in punk at all and were actively trying to stamp it out right down to the local, uh, more muscular, big-time concert promoters trying to wipe out the little venues like Bill Graham tried to in San Francisco. Hmm. But um, so the people who stuck with it were the ones who were really there for the music, for the spirit, for the culture. Right. And it also, because, you know, was so clamped down upon in the States, and let's, let's say North America, I think this applies to Canada too, you know, instead of becoming like an avenue to have hit singles and be on top of the pops like you were in England, even the exploited in the UK subs were on top of the pops. Nothing like that existed, not even the weekly music papers over here. Hmm. And I think because it stayed so far underground and required real commitment, that was the reason that North American punk became so much fiercer than what was going on overseas in the early 80s. And that hardcore came from North America and then later caught on in Europe. You know, I don't think there, you know, I'm not sure how much hardcore there would have been if it wasn't for the uh, lack of avenues to uh, grow into uh, a bigger commercial success on someone else's terms. Right. You had to do what you wanted to do on your own terms. So Black Flag just became more and more intensely what Black Flag was. And uh, the same for Dead Kennedys and DOA and the others, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember what uh, what prompted you to actually start writing your own songs after you know falling in love with all these the musicians you did and getting into theater? Uh, you know, I, I was I was just reading the lyric sheet to the new album and I'm just reminded of what a vivid storyteller you are and and and, and how opinionated you are. But do you remember what first prompted? Well, you? I I think the vivid storytelling comes straight from method acting. Hmm. It took me years to realize that that. You know, all these you were there scenarios that I use and speaking through a number of voices besides myself, it comes from that. You know, it's, it's almost a spiritual thing when you're acting to be able to put your, put your mind inside someone else's, put yourself inside someone else's mind yeah. and body of a character of partially your own creation. You know, you feel different things, experience different things. It's much harder in movies because you know, shoot for 30 seconds, stop, shoot for 30 seconds, stop. Tons of people all around all the time and whatnot. And, and uh, you know, I really, really tip my hat to the master film actors who can bring so much to the screen with it and have the power of concentration to pull that off under the circumstances. Yeah. It amazes me. Do you remember... Although it did occur to me when I was playing that customs officer in... in uh, Highway 61, when we were shooting in Toronto, and my God, all this luggage you get to go through. You get to go through all these people's private stuff. What a perfect perv job for certain kinds of sexual fetishes. 
<laughs> wow, it's so funny. years later, I put that into a song on uh, Never Breathe What You Can't See, you know, the album I did with the Melvins. Actually, a different version is on Big Audi as well, mm-hmm. the lighter side of global terrorism. Mm-hmm. But all the people become, you know, police officers, customs officers, security officers for, for, for the reason that then they can perv out all day. <laughs> You know, I think it's another song on on that same album where you know, what, yeah, I think it's it, I think it's on Plasmograph. Uh, you know, you want to see child porn? Join the Vice Squad. Right. You know, and uh, um, you know, and, and that kind of dialed back too when I was trying to wear almost too many hats at once uh, for Terminal City Ricochet. Yeah. The uh, film that was shot in Vancouver that Joey Keithley is in as well, and as well as Jermaine Hood, an amazing actor, Peter Breck from Big Valley and Shot Core. Great experience overall, but I was wearing too many hats trying to write songs for the soundtrack, score the soundtrack, write for Alternative Tentacles, and do my character at the same time. Right. And I was the... Uh, the Carl Rove, Ollie North, G. Gordon Liddy, Dick Cheney, secret police operator, the sidekick for the uh, for Ross Glimmer, the virtual dictator, by being mayor of one of the last livable cities on Earth, Eternal City. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point, just to try to build the character, I found I, I, they, I, they, they had put me up in this apartment hotel, which was um, one of a, a big cluster of a few too many high-rises built along, uh, oh, is it Burrard Inlet? Or, yeah, I think it is, or is it one of the others? Um, the, before you cross over the bridge and you get eventually out to UBC and Kitsilano. Anyway, um, all these buildings, then when the sun set, everybody would have their lights on, but their curtains weren't closed yet. So uh, I got to do get do do uh, do government surveillance all I wanted to on all these people. And of course, you know, again, the people who really get into stuff like that, a lot of it, I think, is for uh, sexual reasons. And so by day two or so, I even found myself masturbating as Bruce Cottle, the character. And luckily, I knew enough to flip my recording Walkman on and record all my thoughts as I did this. And then I transcribed it later and realized this might make a very interesting song, and that's where Bruce's diary on the album I made the No Means No came from. Huh. It was a great bit of cross-pollination where the people who wrote the screenplay to Terminal City Ricochet had pulled some stuff off of No More Cocoons, my first spoken word album about the falling space jugs that happened in the movie. And so, so, so that pollinated them, then the movie pollinated me, and then I wanted to record one song with DOA and one with No Means No for the soundtrack album, and so much material poured out, we wound, we, I wound up making a whole album with both bands. Right, right. And I'm not, and, and then a calling Space Junk song, two different versions, one on the soundtrack and one on um, Sky is Falling and I Want My Mommy, the No Means No album, that came from the film, you know, me taking it a step further. Okay, what would happen if we all did realize we only had, you know, that the Earth was poisoned with radioactivity and we only had a few weeks or months to live? What would people do? And I figured, okay, this would be a complete breakdown of society. All hell would break loose. The people 
you know, there would be no more rules, no more laws. People figure I have nothing to lose now. I'm just going to break the fucking law and do whatever I want to do, regardless of whether it's legal or moral. Because I'm going to die anyway. It's, it's quite, and then, of course, Bruce's Diary is on that album, too. It's quite a remarkable relationship between your theatrical work as an actor and, and your songwriting. Do you remember the like as you emerge you mentioned that method acting uh, really influenced your songwriting in terms of how vivid it is do you remember what the first songs you wrote were like uh in terms of uh, the voice you ended up having like yeah well you you remember them too because you've heard almost all of them right <laughs> so there was nothing the, there was nothing the first pro- song i ever brought into dead kennedy's was california uber alice right right the first was Keypone Kids, which later became Keypone Factory on In God We Trust. Kidnap was the second one, but we never put that on one of the one of the records because it just wasn't as good as the later song. Huh. And um, you know, the, 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 the No Big Loss Kids, it really wasn't that great a song compared <laughs> to what else came down the pipe. So there was nothing. And at that point, I was, at that point, I was showing all the music to Ray playing a single string on a guitar. That was as far as I got. But oh, okay. uh, then Klaus said later, well, you sing good enough. Why don't you just sing us the part? And then I was a free man because I could make up more complicated stuff, and Klaus could then transpose it and teach it to Ray. I think Chemical Warfare was the first song I did that way. Huh. So it was, and, it was just uh, it was Dead Kennedys. There was nothing like in high school. You didn't have like a, some band, like a cover band or anything. You just Nobody did. Huh. Nobody did. Wow. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. It just wasn't done then. There was the audience and there were the big rock stars and there was no longer anything in between. Wow. I mean, the only way you could possibly get on stage in the greater Denver area, you know, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, was if you played some kind of horrible, uh, you know, Eagles wannabe or whatever country rock or folky dreck. Not good folk, not good country, but the worst of the worst. Right. You play anything that rocks, you'll never get a gig. You know, there was no hope for somebody like me. I mean, people didn't really, very few people even picked up instruments and played them then. You know, you played in the high school band or the orchestra, you didn't play, and that was all you played. And who knows, maybe something might have happened if, uh, you know, the, the friends I knew who did kind of know how to play instruments hadn't fallen under the spell of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Yes, and Worth, 
right about the time I discovered the MC5 and the Stooges. I mean, I'm still friends with those guys, but, you know, any any kind of garage or even cover band, you know, you, they, they, was out the door at that point. Plus, there was, you know, what would we do for a drummer, whatever. I mean, it never got that far. You couldn't even dream of something like that. It simply wasn't done. There was no internet. There were no underground zines, no blogs, nothing. Right. The, the star makers from the major labels dictated what you were going to listen to, and that was it. Huh. If you wanted to discover cooler things, you really had to dig and experiment, which is what I did. And so I think that that is another reason that American punk had a certain, and North American punk had a certain kind of sharp teeth coming out of it that not all European punk did in the end was because it wasn't people who wanted to be David Bowie or Slade. It was that one of those one or two lonely Stooges fans leaving their smaller towns for a few bigger cities, meeting up with other people who liked the Stooges and the Velvet Underground or in the case of the weirder ones like me, Captain Beefheart, right. and then starting your band. I mean, I guess the people who grew into DOA and the Canadian subhumans had some kind of a teenage, you know, hard rock band called Stone Crazy. Hmm. But I don't know whether it ever made it made it out of a practice room. Right. Gimwit did give me a photo of Stone Crazy that I still have somewhere. And it's hilarious to see him and Joey and... Uh, I think Brian Goble, maybe maybe Brad Kent in there, or maybe Jerry Hanna. You know, that crew of people, they all got the long hair and the yeah. leather hippie hats and everything. And someday, if I find that fucking photo again, you know, the scandal will be revealed. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, after all, the, the, the long-haired, thin-encrusted hippie photos of me in the high school yearbooks have already turned up in heavy metal magazines and more. So, right. Right. Everything. I can't be nailed by that. Plus, I have no regret about those days. It's just one more thing I explored and got a lot of cool knowledge from. I mean, there. You know, without Hawkwind, there'd be no holiday in Cambodia. Right. Right. You know, I was the only person in Dead Kennedys who liked Hawkwind, but uh, when Klaus pulled out that bass riff, I I smelled a space punk classic and knew what to do. <laughs> Am I correct? The, the Guantanamo School of Medicine is really your first proper band since Dead Kennedys, right? Yeah, it is. I didn't plan it that way, but there were so many adventures, good and bad, derailing me over the years that it didn't happen till later. Right. I mean, the Frankenchrist trial was the you know the obscenity bus was a year and a half ordeal, but then that vaulted me onto the college lecture circuit as a as a as an expert on censorship or something and people got the spoken word shows instead and it all went well and i realized wait a minute you know there's another gift here that i really probably ought to use and i always did have a, a another walter Mitty ambition to be abby hoffman or something someday so and this was the closest i was ever going to come i mean i could you know take the political angle of the dead kennedy lyrics and flesh it out more and penetrate and warp people's brains on a deeper level. But there ain't no substitute for the adrenaline and wall of power behind you when you rock. So 
you know, the, the, the deeper I moved in activist circles, the more I realized that there was something different about me than some of those folks, too. And it was, it was the punk and the rock. And and you did engage in projects along the along the way. I, when I say first proper band, I mean this is a band. This is a real band. You're fronting a band, but you mentioned working with DOA. No means no. Melvins. I mean, th- along the way, you have been making music, but there was this. It seemed anyway to be a maybe a bit of a resistance to actually being in a real band. And I wondered if it was. It, w- it wasn't a resistance. It's just not how the cards how 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 everything landed in the end. Oh, okay. You know, I mean, DOA wanted to tour that album. Al wanted to tour Lard into a touring band. I wanted to hide and write more songs and get, you know, and, and get my own thing going. And then other things happened. And then eventually, uh, you know, Ray and company sued me over the Levi's commercial and whatnot. And, you know, that was about a four, four year near fatal ordeal and whatnot. So, you know, it kept coming and going. And then Buzz and Dale said they wanted to tour and, play dead Kennedy songs to get back at those guys for wrecking the whole legacy of the DK. And I, I told them, well, it, it sounds good in a way, but how about, why don't we do some new songs? And in the end, they were game, and two pretty amazing albums came out of that. The irony was, I brought in the slower, for the most part, I brought in the slower, heavy rockers, you know, to try and tailor my tunes for the Melvins, and Buzz brought in the punkier songs for me. <laughs> I, I think, in a way, it was the greatest good-natured writing competition I've ever been in with anybody else. Right, and yet, you know, what a great, what a great foil. <laughs> and, and yet, uh, I mean, these these projects had their lifespan. Everyone was busy doing their own thing. Well, I mean, it's not as though I ever stopped making music. I've made way more music albums after Dead Kennedys than with Dead Kennedys. Right, right. You know, and to me, it's all one big body of work, you know, the greater whole and, you know, pushing envelopes this way and that to widen the base of the punk music pyramid. On the new album, there's a song called Burgers of Wrath, and you actually quote Soup is Good Food by Dead Kennedys. Can you talk a little bit about why that made sense? Um, because I was trying to allude to the earlier, what I was saying in the earlier song about, you know, the, the cruelty of treating human beings as, uh, as disposable pieces of shit, basically. Yeah. I also thought that that was the hardest hitting song about unemployment and homelessness I was ever going to write. And I knew that it, that it was a song that could be played several different ways. You could play it the country rockabilly style that was on, uh, the Prairie Home Invasion I did with Mojo, or you could really punk it out, which I'd done earlier in some live cameos with the offspring and stuff. So, And then Ralph, in particular, and GSM, didn't really want to do a balls-out punk version. He said he wanted to take it more country than the Mojo version, which wasn't really quite what I had in mind, but then we played around with it. You know, suddenly these southern rock jams started coming out, because both Ralph and Timo are such good guitar players, and they play so well with each other, and there's no competition between them because they're such close friends. Right. You know, Timo even feels they play telepathically, that he and Ralph play telepathically. And, and so all this cool shit came out of jamming the song, and I thought, wow, no punk band has ever attempted this before, let alone pulled it off. 
I never was that big an Almond Brothers fan, but a punk rock Almond, at least for one song, might be really cool. So in referencing this past song of yours, and I mean we talked about this already, but are you are you kind of at are you 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 say you you you're you're pleased about your association with Dead Kennedys? Are you at peace with the band? Are you at peace with the situation? Absolutely not. You know, I really really get tired of of what we did together being pimped in really unspeakably you know piss poor ways, basically. Mm. You know, I, I don't back the current editions of the albums at all because, of course, the rights were swiped in a lawsuit, and I don't feel that the, you know, the people who are marketing them now deserve to have them, let alone the way that dumbed everything down. So and so, yeah. um, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, and I get and I get uh, threats fairly leg- regularly from their lawyer or their manager. Although usually the way they operate is just not to tell me what's going on. The threats are about things you've said, or yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the First Amendment right to free speech seems to involve apply to everybody but me. Hmm. You, know, you know, I'm failing to help promote the catalog or some other corporate language like that. I mean, of course, they've been trying to arm twist and you know, even bully me into rejoining them so they can make more money off of me and stuff, that I somehow owe it to them, or as Klaus put it in Punk News, I'm punishing the fans by not sucking their penises and going back into, a, you know, the retro version of Dead Kennedys on their terms. Right. You know, where their manager and the other people they've surrounded themselves with would wind up being my boss. You know, and I'm just a hired poodle, and I have no interest in that. It's you know, you want you, you you want me back in the real dead Kennedys, and it's got to be the real dead Kennedys, and they have to undo every last bit of damage they've done, or no deal. I mean, the last offer I turned down was in the millions, but I'm just not interested. But are you saying that if they if somehow could undo everything they've done, you would consider it? You would contemplate? I'd, I'd contemplate it if they have, you know, if they finally wised up and manned up and did me right, but I'm not expecting that anytime soon. Right. And what would that consist of, though? Like, what would... I know I've, I'm aware of some of the things they've done, but what would you like to see happen? Well, obviously, obviously the music has got to return back to uh, the label where it's loved and respected. Right. You know, and there's going to have to be a house cleaning of, uh, you know, people who you know, surrounding the surrounding the band and whatnot. I mean, uh, you know, some of the people they're mixed up with kind of give me the creeps, hmm. and I'm not going to work with them. Right. And uh, and obviously they're going to have to admit they lied. <laughs> and is is they're up to go point by point, or would fill a phone book? But they lied under oath at the trial. They've lied in the media. You know, they've lied. You know, they've lied on the website and everything else. And you know, they, they they're going to have to they're going to have to admit that it's exactly what it was and apologize. Right. And are they aware of this position of yours? Are they aware that this is something that uh, that you're like, as you say, you're not really contemplating it? But are, are they aware that you feel this way? Yeah, I, I mean, the only thing close to direct contact I've had with them in almost 15 years 
was a kind of puppy dog answering the theme message from Klaus on how they just love to have me at this fake reunion show that was even advertised as a you know, reunion, Mabue Cards, you know, whatever, at the Fillmore of all places in San Francisco, a Live Nation venue. Oh, man. So we just love to have you there. And so I just sent him a fax back saying, you undo all the damage you've done, I'm there. Huh. And I, I got some really angry reply, but I can't remember what it was. Right. You know, the, 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 at some level, they have to know that all the scamming and the greed that motivated and the loss ensuing and ensuing and just trying to smash my life to pieces and take everything, um, you know, at some level, they've got to realize that it's cost, this has cost them way the fuck more than they've ever gained. Yeah. The only way they're ever going to be able to clean, cleanse themselves of all the bad voodoo that follows them everywhere is to get right with me. When I saw the when I saw this band, when I saw your band, the Guantanamo School of Medicine, um, it was interesting seeing you play these songs um, because obviously the crowd, the, the audience really appreciates them as well. Does, what does it mean to be playing them uh, again with uh, these people with this new band? Is it is, that must it's, be? It's kind of, it's kind of like taking them back from corporate pirates in a way, I suppose, but. Uh, I think the main motive is positive rather than negative. They're good fucking songs. They're my fucking songs. Yeah. You know, there's some of them, like Holiday in Cambodia, never comes out the same way twice. It never has. And it's a very theatrical song, too. So it's a really, really good one to play live. You know, and people like it for that reason. So, hell, why not play it live? I mean, when Buzz and Dale, you know, you know made a point of saying, look, we want to take this thing live. We don't just want to make studio albums and we want to play some Dead Kennedy songs. You know, I resisted at first. I wanted to make, have a completely clean slate. And they pushed and pushed and argued and argued and finally said, look, part of the reason we're here is because of seeing your band when we were teenagers and went to your shows in Seattle. We want to play the, some of these songs because it's a really, it would be a really cool, emotionally uplifting thing for us. And so I, I, I agreed. <laughs> and, then, and then I realized, you know, you know, wait a minute. Anyway, I mean, it's, uh, it's um, you know, the, it's part of my legacy. It's part of what I do. And I've made a point from the beginning with GSM that uh, it has to be a majority, you know, we'll, we'll largely play our own stuff. And uh, we, we, we've done well with that. I mean, uh, the... Uh, you know, the, the, the audiences and, you know, people who come to hear only Dead Kennedy songs are pleasantly and visibly surprised when they hear the new songs and realize that, you know, the, even if the songs don't all sound like Dead Kennedy songs, that the old family recipe is intact because, you know, the way I do shit is the recipe. <laughs> well, the show, the show I saw in Toronto the last time was unbelievable. It was great. Good, good. Yeah, I, I encourage people to check it out. Now, beyond this record, uh, beyond these tour dates, what's next for you, Jello, and, and what's next for Alternative Tentacles? Well, uh, for me, I'm not sure. There's a few things here and there. I'm finally, at some level, re reviving spoken words for a, the Rebellion Festival in England, but it's only a one-hour festival slot rather than the full multi-hour show with the intermission. I haven't had time to get that together again yet, so... Spoken word is still largely on the back burner, but 
I've been invited to some to speak at some ceremony, a pretty heavy duty one honoring Ralph Nader. So probably going to do that. I mean, that, those kind of honors don't come along every day. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, what else? What else is going on? Um, haven't had a chance to really immerse myself in writing the next batch of songs. I mean, there's just been too much of a treadmill of touring and other tumultuous crap in my life in the form of a lot of my closest and dearest friends dying all in a period of a few months, which is really kind of fucked up my head. I'm sorry to hear that. But well, no, everybody from Dave Gregg from DOA, Dave Brocky from Guar, H.R. Giger, my father was what kicked it off. And then one of my closest friends was the old manager of the Ravers, clear back then. We still knew each other really well. My older brother I never had, he died unexpectedly. Another old friend in England who followed Dead Kennedys around as a teenager on the first tour, so we just made him and his buddies the crew on the other two tours. But we never lost contact. His son found him dead in his bed a couple months ago. Cause still unknown, as far as I know, and he wasn't a drug addict. Hmm. So, I mean, it's just one shock after another like that. Scott Ashton from the Stooges, another one. I didn't know him well, but where would any of us be today without what he brought to the table? Yeah. I mean, the Stooges wasn't just Iggy. It was all of them coming together to make what they made on their terms and get away with it. You know, where would my life be without that? Where would anybody? You know, how many of the people I know today would I even know without the fucking Stooges? I hear you. So, uh, you know, it, it's a real ongoing bit of despair here. So, you know, drive carefully, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, well, I, I do appreciate your time. I'm sorry, did you... Uh, it's, it seems like a terrible segue to go from uh, what you just said to business, but uh, are there alternative tentacles releases that uh, we should be aware of? Well, all of them, obviously. I mean, for crying out loud, do you have any idea how hard it is to be an independent label these days, especially when your main project got swiped by, you know, bitter old bandmates with a bunch of, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, lawyers and stuff? You know, it's, it's hard. Yeah. And it's especially hard when there's so many cool bands, so many cool labels that the slices of the pie get ever smaller at the same time that more and more people don't buy albums or LPs or CDs at all and just file shit. Right. And, um, you know, and it's a double-edged sword because when an economy crashes and people don't have any money, yeah, they're going to file share. They're not going to have disposable income to buy uh, LPs and CDs. But at the same time, I think several really good bands and artists who have been on the on alternate tentacles in recent years ended themselves way too soon, mm. in part because they couldn't make a go of it, because no matter how much of a buzz there was on their bands, nobody was buying the albums. You know, they were packing their live shows, but everybody thought, hey, well, we like this music so much, we're just going to file share it. Yeah. And ultimately, um, you know, I, I think people need to be a little more choosy about that. If you can afford it for crying out loud, buy something from the under, underground independent band and underground label because we're all a community and we need the community's support or we're not going to survive. Yeah. Even Grand Royal had the plug pulled. Right. And I think even Touch and Go does mostly back catalog now. 
Yeah, they, that's ex- almost exclusively what they do. It's true. I believe. Yeah, and the reason, and the main reason, is because people, um, you know, piss all over the independents when they file share like that. Yeah. I mean, fi- you know, file sharing major label stuff, fine. <laughs> you know, they go so far out of their way to rip their own artists off anyway. Um, you know, it's not really, it doesn't really fall as clearly into the category of directly ripping off an artist. Mm. But, uh, you know, for crying out loud, the, the excuse, oh, well, Spotify's too expensive, or, uh, well, I, I help the band because I, I, I share the file with my roommate or whatever. You know, that doesn't cut it, people. Right. So, uh, so but, but, but we're still hanging in there. I mean, we've done everything from the newer Subhumans Canada albums to uh, reissuing the Dix albums and... Uh, Oh boy! What else? You know, we we even did a double album of Voivod demos before they ever signed to Metal Blade. Nice. Where they're just like like angry teenagers in in up in that mining town north of Mont- Montreal where they came from, just uh, blasting their hearts out with two room mics in the practice room. You know, it kind of sounds like what Vo- it sounds like what a Voivod album would have been if they wound up on something like profane existence maybe <laughs> instead it's really raw especially snake and uh so uh, real proud of that one and uh newer bay area bands like pins of light and uh peace creep and then a completely off the deep end garage band from la called fm number nine who must be seen to be believed and uh we were reissuing the really red catalog that Fall and uh, oh, let's see, and then, and then uh, also coming in the fall is a uh, debut album by an almost unclassified, unclassifiable band from Denver called Itchio, I T C H Y hyphen capital O, who are a uh, you know when they've got everybody there, they're a thirty-piece electronic marching band. Oh. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I saw them in a warehouse where the room went dark, and they entered from different doors at once. You know, with the big old college marching drums and all that kind of stuff, plus a guitarist and a bassist on a stage. But everybody else could move around, and they all had these black cat suits on with eye holes and mouth holes. Otherwise, you couldn't see their faces or even identify their gender. And mohawks of light bulbs on the top although they've also used big black Mexican hats with light bulbs all over them, too, and a trained uh, Chinese dragon dancing team. So you've got a great big dragon moving around at the same time. And uh, Bob Serbrish, who did all that great production work for Slim Sesame's Auto Club and Woven Hand and 16 Horsepower, clear back to the frantic stuff he recorded in the early 80s that we just reissued. You know, my dad's a fucking alcoholic, but... A lot of people think of the Mud Honey song, but it was actually the Frantic who later morphed into the fluid. Anyway, um, Bob actually figured out a way to record Ichio. So, you know, it, it, it's really full-on Wallace Sound production, but clean enough in its own way that dance floor friendly. Nice. Well, it sounds, it's good to hear that the label's so busy and that uh, you're still uh, supporting uh, younger and emerging artists. That's great. Yeah, if I had any sense, I probably would pull the plug, but then who's going to pull out, put out my stuff? <laughs> and, you know, what's more fulfilling to me in the end? 
you know, doing the East Bay Ray thing and obsessing over my 401k investments or something or, you know, counting beans or making things and help other helping other people make stuff. I like to make stuff. Yeah, no, it's quite clear. And speaking of stuff, I'd like to say that once again, Jello Biafra and the Guantanamo School of Medicine's new album is White People and the Damage Done, and their current tour brings them to call the office in London, Ontario, on June 16th, and the Opera House in Toronto on June 17th. And for more information about this and all of the great records Jello just uh, d- discussed there, please visit alternativetentacles.com. Uh, Jello, before we end this, uh, is there a song from the new album that uh, we can play for people? Well, first, I guess I have to answer an, a frequently asked question is that there's also this great big festival going on in Quebec. I think it's called Rockfest or something like that. That's happening right around the same time. And we were supposed to play that, too. Oh. And the promoter, for some reason, thought it would be a real cool idea to book us and the fake dead Kennedys on the same day and not tell either party that the other was on the bill. Oh. I did not know this. You know, which especially leaves a bad taste in my mouth because this promoter pushed our booking agent for us to confirm clear back in November, and we did. And then right at the last minute, the fake DKs walk on, and he didn't tell them we were already on. He didn't tell us he was adding them. And then we said, yo, you know, we were here a lot earlier, and you even said that they weren't on the bill at the time. What the fuck is up with this? And, you know, and he kind of deferred to them. So, needless to say, we figured we're out of there. And, you know, for the people wondering why we're not at Rockfest after the initial press release out of there said that we and Dead Kennedys are both playing, well, that's the reason. You think this was a ruse to try to get some kind of, well, he couldn't have possibly, this promoter couldn't possibly have uh, initialized some kind of reconciliation or reunion, but it does seem like... That seems like a very purposeful uh, oversight. I don't know what to think. It was either purposeful or it was incredibly clueless and incompetent. Right, right. One of the two. And no other promoter, no matter how sleazy, anywhere in the world, ever tried to pull this scam before. Canada. I apologize on behalf of Canada, Jello. That's not right. And uh, we're good people, even though we don't always pronounce your name correctly and sometimes make <laughs> questionable booking decisions. No, no I, I know that. I know a lot of good people in Canada. I'm just kind of amazed that the, that this guy tried to pull the scam that he did and thought he could get away with it. Yeah, no, that's that sounds really awful. Well, okay, so so the, your only Canadian dates as a result of this are, are London and Toronto on, right. on this tour. Okay, all right. Now, is there a song from the new record that we can play? Uh, play whatever one you like. Okay. I put a lot of hard work into all of them, so uh, play whatever one you want. Is there something that, uh, I'm just trying to think of something that uh, captures our conversation. And so I guess our conversation was all over the place. What could it be? Well, we did talk about uh, Burgers of Wrath. Maybe, uh, maybe... You, you, you can do that one. You can do any of them. I mean, uh, we, we, we uh, there, there, there's plenty of things to choose from there. <laughs> It's true. That's. I was hoping you would. Sometimes when I ask an artist uh, or guest to pick a song, I kind of feel like it could be insightful in, in in its own way. You know, like if they say, "Well, you know what I'd like to hear." You know, it's it's almost uh, 
it's it's telling in a way. That's why I ask. I, I also appreciate that you don't want to pick your own song. You have to choose. All right, I am going to... You have to, to make up your mind. You have to take a stand. <laughs> well, You're responsible a... for funneling, the, boiling this album down to one song for your listeners, well, or that... you can play more another time. You're making this very difficult for me now. I, I feel, I'm feeling some pressure. I mean, we also covered... It shouldn't, it shouldn't be difficult at all. You're the one who wants to be a, be a podcaster. Do your job. <laughs> all right, here it is. I'm going to go with Burgers of Wrath. I was thinking... Of Hollywood goof disease, just because we covered that too. But I think, uh, no, Burgers of Wrath, why not? We talked about it pretty extensively. Here it is, Burgers of Wrath. Uh, Jello, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for your time. And best of luck. All right, thanks. Okay, bye. Don't mean 
Thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. the 
softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.